This podcast is a production of Athlete Plus, the people, stories, and science behind elite athletes and teams. Athlete Plus is the official podcast network of the Institute for Coaching Excellence, a research, education, and outreach center in the College of Health and Human Performance at the University of Florida. Welcome back to the art and science of developing athletes. Uh, my name is Mike Sagas. Today I'm joined by a, I would say a veteran of uh, athlete <laughs> development, a very uh, accomplished athlete development specialist who's, who's uh, worked at many levels across multiple sports. Really excited to get to learn more about his career and for our listeners to understand and have a better sense of what it takes to work in athlete development, the complexity and the nuance that really is there. It's not so much always about athlete development. There's a lot of acumen uh, that is necessary to uh, to do this job well. And our guest today has has, has done that, uh, like I said, over uh, for a couple decades now in this field. So I'm gonna ask him to talk about each of those stops in his athlete development journey, and then we'll double click on a few of those to talk about some skills, abilities, advice to young athlete development specialists, things maybe you should have, you wish you would have known that you didn't know now. I'd, I like to reflect on that question a lot myself as an academic. Uh, so Bahadi Van Pelt, thank you for being here. Thanks for having me. Bringing in uh, and uh, joining us here from the University of Florida College of Journalism and uh, Mass Communication, CJC, we call it. Um, quickly, uh, well, not quickly, take your time, actually. I always say quickly on the background, but the whole point you're here is we want to hear about the journey that is an athlete development specialist of 20 plus years. Uh, how'd you get started in this field? What were your stop, your first stop? And then we'll move on and, and talk about some of the other levels that you've been uh, fortunate to, to work in. All right. Well, once again, thanks for having me. My journey has been a little unique, I would say, based on uh, just the stops I've had, the organizations I've had the opportunity to work with, and then, you know, obviously the experience that you develop from that. So I was a college student athlete. I played basketball, grew up playing many different sports through middle school and high school, started to get pretty good at basketball. I had some friends that were way taller and a little more athletic uh, than me, so they end up playing in the NBA. But, you know, when you hang around exceptional athletes, sometimes it kind of rubs off on you. So had an opportunity to go and play basketball at Florida Atlantic University. Started there, was there for a couple of years ended up hurting my knee and then transferred and finished my undergraduate at Flagler College in St. Augustine. So when I was at Flagler my senior year, you know, trying to take the necessary credits in order to graduate on time, one of the electives that I took was sports management. And, you know, I was a communications major, but sports management kind of became my minor for lack of a better term. And they used to have several guest speakers that would come in and speak to the class. And one guest speaker that came in was a guy named Steve Garish that he was at the time he was the director of community relations for the Jacksonville Jaguars. And so the Jaguars had just started. You know, I graduated from Flagler in 96. The Jaguars first season was 95. So they were they had just completed their first season. And during his speech, when he was talking about the things that he did on a daily basis, you know, kind of the story of how the Jaguars came to be and stuff. St. Augustine, Flagler College is in St. Augustine. So it's about 30, 40 minutes south of Jacksonville right down 
95. And he just happened to mention that NFL teams hire interns. Uh, they help through training camp and to get them through the season because obviously there's so much work and there's a limited amount of full-time staff. So they need interns in different departments. And he said, you know, they hire interns in community relations, football operations, communications, special events, all of the areas that, you know, to help put on practices, game day, travel, all of the things that are necessary for an NFL team to function during the season. And for whatever reason, in my mind, I was like, well, that sounds like a cool thing to do. You know, I had played team sports. I was used to being around sports. I loved sports. I always loved football. My father played football. My uncle coached football. So to me, it was like, that sounds like a no brainer. I'm not going to go professional in basketball, but this would be something that I would like to do and sounds like a cool job and I'll figure it out after I'm done. So I end up applying for the internship. Now, I always tell this story, you know, and I'll talk a little bit more about somebody that was really influential was the the guy that I worked for in Jacksonville. But literally when I applied, my resume had my name, email address, phone number, <laughs> Uh, an address. Back then, you used to put your actual physical address on your resume. It had my education and playing career. And then I had done an intern. I was actually currently doing an internship at Big Brothers Big Sisters in St. Augustine. You had to do a semester internship as a credit in order to graduate. And that was it. Like my resume was maybe a third of the pay, not a lot of experience. Uh, And like I say, if you really took away what I did athletically, it could have probably been two or three sentences. And I applied. I think I turned in my resume that was in like April. I graduated in May. Didn't really, you know, hear anything back. So I was like, well, I guess I didn't get it. And the Jaguars called me in June and said, hey, do you want to interview? You turned in. I was like, sure. Drove up, interviewed and end up getting the job. Still to this day, you know, I asked. Uh, so Dan Edwards, who just retired from the Jaguars as the senior VP of communications, he hired me. And so Dan Dan was very influential. I know we're going to talk a little bit about skill set and things that that can help you further your career. He taught me a really valuable lesson. I'll save that part. But I asked Dan, I said, you know, what was the reason you hired me? Because he told me, he said, we had over 100 and something resumes maze and you know a lot of people apply and stuff and I asked him why me I know I didn't have a lot of experience and stuff and he said because I was teachable I had been an athlete and I didn't have a lot of bad habits mm-hmm. <laughs> as he said so he just felt that I'd be coachable and so he took a chance on me so I did that that internship was supposed to last a couple of months for anybody that knows the history of the Jaguars they end up making the playoffs going all the way through to the AFC championship game so probably a three four month internship for me end up turning into seven eight months the Jaguars didn't have a full-time opportunity, so I went back home, actually worked at a golf course. I had just taken up playing golf, and I came home one day, and my mom said, there's a guy from the Falcons that left a message for you on the answering machine. And I thought it was like somebody joking. I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, okay. He was like, She was like, no, he's called like twice, and then he left a message. He said, call him back. So I called him back. It was a guy named Charlie Taylor, who was the Dan Edwards of the Falcons. And Charlie had hired an intern. The intern, for whatever reason, ended up not being being able to take the position. Charlie called Dan and a couple other guys he knew in the league and was like, hey, I need an intern. We're getting ready to start. And Dan gave him my name. He said, this guy is in, in Atlanta. He's in the local area. If you if you want to talk to him, here's his number and stuff. So I went and literally walked in the door, talked to Charlie for about 30 minutes. Next thing I know, I'm changing clothes and we're getting ready for practice. <laughs> 
It was off season practice. Like I was hired on the spot and that's that's how that started. And so a three, four month internship ended up actually transferring into a career in the NFL. So I worked for the Falcons for a year and then Dan had a position. One of the guys that I worked with when I interned there had left to take another job with another organization. So Dan called me and said, uh, you know, if you want, I thought you did a great job here. If you want the job, if the Falcons aren't going to hire you full time, you're absolutely welcome to come back here. So I moved back to Jacksonville, was in Jacksonville for for 15 years, worked in communications, worked in youth football. And then from 2001 on, I was director of player development. So for the last 12 years, while I was in Jacksonville, I got on the uh, development side and then finished up in Jacksonville. Owners changed. Mr. Weaver sold the team to Mr. Khan. One thing I'll always tell people, if you work in sports, you have to understand that at any moment, the landscape can change on you. Just like players get released and coaches get let go. You know, if you work Work on the football side of things, you just understand that that's a potential possibility. So the Jaguars let a bunch of us go just because of new ownership coming in. Spent about six months trying to figure out what I was going to do and then interviewed and went through the process to uh, be hired as executive director of the trust powered by the NFLPA. So it was this new entity that the NFL Players Association was creating. Uh, the funding had come, had come out of the most recent CBA. And so got a chance to have that opportunity, loved it, moved to D.C., hired a staff. We had an opportunity to build some really good programming for either guys that were no longer playing in the NFL or for the guys that had been cut. So they were cut. They still were sort of pursuing their career, but it looked like they were going to be transitioning out and did that for about six and a half years. And the next thing you know, I get a call about the USOPC, the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, was looking to hire their first chief of athlete services. And I didn't know anything. I mean, uh, all I knew about the Olympics was what I saw on TV every four years, went through that process and got the job and then spent two years and four months at the USOPC and started there in November of 2019. Everybody knows what happened in March of 2020. So you quickly, not only are you still trying to prepare for games and get Get Team USA ready to compete, but you're also dealing with the effects of the pandemic, remote working, a lot of mental health things. And I know we can talk a little bit more about that, but it really took on a broader, greater urgency about not only the programming, but how you engage with athletes, how you keep people connected, how you build community and things like that. So now I'm kind of off on my own. I've started a consulting business to, to not only work with professionals that are in sports, but also, you know, a lot of the leadership and the coaching and the professional development that I've learned throughout my career. I've had some really great mentors. How do I then pay that forward and try to help other people be successful in their chosen field, whether it's sports or whether it's, you know, business in general. Thanks for uh, sharing. Interesting journey. Not one I knew. Well, I, I just, I know you from your Wikipedia. None of, <laughs> not, a lot of that is not there. Uh, yeah, my mom Googles. Or, or your LinkedIn. Yeah, my too. mom Googles me. I tell, yeah. her don't, I tell her don't Google me. <laughs> <laughs> I've read a few of the bios and what I can find on you, but yeah. interesting. So yeah, I did want to, like I said, we want to drill down on skills, abilities, even knowledge, just the, 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 the basic the human capital, soft, tangible, whatever it might be. I'm sure you just mentioned, you know, at least 20 there that yeah. you had to use across the spectrum. Yeah. So when you start, it's interesting you start in communications. That seems to be a really good kind of entry Absolutely. into the human, the per people business we're in in athlete development. So the skills that maybe you transferred from communications and when you start doing player engagement, whole different, you know, you're on the team side. Yes. And you're dealing with players, some really high, you know, some good guys from across the, the you know, across the abilities and skills and abilities that they have. And you have to 
cater to all of them, meet them where they're at Yes, and pull them up and help them pull themselves up. So what skills would you say if you had to just summarize two or three that you think are most important when NFL player engagement, team level side, and even some of that communications skill set? Well, I think the first thing, and you mentioned it earlier, was that we're in the people business. I'm a big believer in that. I always tell people I'm in the people business, not in the sports business. The people that I serve just happen to be some of the most elite athletes in the world. But at the core of that, like you say, you're dealing with people. You know, everybody, no matter whether you're an athlete, whether you're a salesperson, whether you're a teacher, whether you're working in government, everybody shows up with who they are that day. And it could be things that are going on at home, financial stressors, relationship challenges, health challenges. So you want to make sure that, you know, I think we throw out the term, we meet them where they are. And I think sometimes people think, oh, well, you're supposed to do that, but you have to be very intentional about doing that. And, you know, the communication skills and the things I learned were, you know, I took public speaking classes. I actually was a radio DJ for uh, a semester. You got got the voice for it. (laughs) I get it from my dad. We sound just alike. But uh, uh, part of the mass communication curriculum was that you had to work either in TV or radio production. I chose radio because I'm a a big music fan. But you you learn those different things. Like you say, understanding people's backgrounds, being able to find things that you can connect with them on. One of my biggest things was I always used to say I didn't want the players in Jacksonville to only see me if there was a issue. So I was I wanted to engage what we could talk about. Like if I know that you're a basketball fan and your favorite team is the Lakers, because I had some guys from the West Coast. I'm a big basketball fan. Let's just talk about the games that were on last night. If it's a guy that has uh, children and, you know, his son is starting to play Pop Warner football, you know, we can talk about that. So that was my way of trying to meet them where they were, as opposed to that they only saw me if, hey, coach wants to talk to you about this, or I know you've been dealing with this. Let's sit down and let's have a talk. One of the things I learned is that if you help people with the small things, they'll come to you with the big thing. That's just something that I always tried to remember is that what could I do to do two things? Number one, meet them where they are, but then number two, also uh, show them that I'm solution oriented and that I could help them as they navigate the career. Because if you've got 53 guys on an NFL team, you know, the perceived notion is that everybody is there and, you know, they're all striving for the same thing, which is to win the Super Bowl. That is the case. That is the ultimate goal. But there are a bunch of smaller things that are going on within that goal to win a Super Bowl. Some guys are playing for their next contract. Some guys are coming back from injury and they're just trying to keep their space on the roster. If you're a young guy, you're trying to prove that you belong in the league. If you're an older guy, you're trying to prove that you can hold off the young guy that they just drafted in order to keep your spot. So you have to understand how those dynamics work and be able to engage with players in those in those different areas, as opposed to just kind of almost pigeonholing everybody in the one group and you end up missing the opportunities to build better relationships. And then ultimately what you're trying to do is build trust. You know, the way you communicate with them, the way you serve and support them, ultimately, hopefully builds you a reservoir of trust. And then when they are dealing with something major or they're transitioning out, they know that just hopefully how you were able to serve them and support them during their playing career, you would also be able to do the same once they transition out because the last 
last thing you want anyone to feel is that you only engaged and talked to me when you felt I was needed. But now that I'm not needed, you don't want to have anything to do with me. And exactly. And, and those experiences in Jacksonville actually is what spurred a lot of the philosophies that we end up instituting at the trust. Cause I had seen guys go through that. I had seen, you know, I had been there and talked to them and their wives and their families about this is what it's going to look like now that you're no longer playing. So, you know, being able to bring those experiences into the trust. So it wasn't just about programming, but it was still about the people was, was important. So it seemed like at the micro level when you're, you know, boots on the ground, athlete facing literally every day, relationships, trusts. You're saying the thought of that wasn't, you went now to the more macro or say mezzo, the NFLPA. Yes. Starts this vertical called the trust. So maybe if you could share a little bit about what the trust is all about and then the skills there that maybe were different from being on yeah. the team side. Yeah, definitely a different skill set. So in 2013, we launched the trust powered by the NFLPA. So in the collective bargain agreement, the players union, the NFLPA and the league, the NFL agreed that there will be funding that would go towards transitioning NFL players. Players that were no longer on an active roster were transitioning out of the game. And so the NFLPA came up with this model and this philosophy of, you know, what are the areas, what are the verticals that you want to serve in? Continuing education, career transition, financial education, mental health and wellness, physical health, because if you've ever had an opportunity to spend time around former NFL players, just, you know, the health challenges that occur from playing a game that's, you know, a collision sport when you're running into each other. So, you know, looking at those different areas and saying, okay, how do we best serve and support through programming and through resources? And the trust really just became this entity where former NFL players, if they had two or more credited seasons, so if they had played in the NFL at least two years, they were eligible for all of these resources. It was totally funded through the collective bargain agreement. So it was of no out-of-pocket cost to players. And then for us, it was about who do we work with as essential partners in order to, you know, administer these resources. So we work with some of the leading hospitals around the country on the physical health side. We work with mental health providers in local areas. And then also if someone needed more intensive treatment, we work with career transition partners. We work with continuing education. There was a scholarship that would help former players go back and either finish their undergrad degree or continue and get a postgraduate degree, you know, and all of the other entities. We had, we had a whole engagement team that we put on events and opportunities for players to come and mingle and get back together, create that feeling of being in the locker room again. And it has continued to grow and expand the NFL and NFLPA just last year. They uh, secured a new 10-year collective bargain agreement. And, and probably the biggest measure of success from what was started in 2013 is that the trust and the funding and all of the things that the trust did for those six and a half years when I was there, everything continued into the new collective bargain agreement, which is now another 10 year agreement. So, you know, had some tremendous success there. Great people that I worked with on the NFL PA side and then the staff at the trust. And I still follow them on social media and just the work that they're doing is so impactful. Skill, anything you wish you would have known there, you know, at the end of that <laughs> six years before you move on to the next level. Yeah. I mean, is uh, that any, you've, you've described a little bit before we started recording when we talked earlier about just how I mean, the, the NFLPA is a really complex business and it, you know, it's like a, almost a for-profit company as well as it's a union. Yes. And then they have lots of verticals and they got 
stuff going on all over the place. You don't even realize it. Yeah. And I'm sure that impacted you some that you're coming from a, yeah. a communication role where you build relationships and you're leading with, you know, emotion and empathy. And, yes. And now you're charged with managing revenue at a, in a, if expanding revenue. Yeah. And I don't know, any, anything in particular you think yeah, it's, uh, it's unique to that experience? So the first thing I did was read the collective bargain agreement. <laughs> okay, that's new. <laughs> because yeah. you, you have to know what's in it, not only just from the sense of how the trust was created and what its function was and kind of what the do's and don'ts were, but also just understanding more of the business side of an NFL player. What are their benefits when they're on an active roster? When do they get their pension? When do they get their annuity? How's their 401k match? What time of year does that happen? All of the little intricate things that go into building out, you know, a two, 300 page collective bargain agreement. I needed to know those things because if you're going to have conversations and athletes and pl former players are going to ask you these questions, you want to be able to answer them. You know, how does it work for workers comp? How do they apply for disability? How do they apply for line of duty? And all, what do those terms mean? You have to be knowledgeable about that. So that's probably the first skill set was improving on my research and understanding of the business side. You talk about the union, the union, the NFL, PA is just like any other union for employees. You know, they're dealing with wages, they're dealing with, you know, benefits, and they're dealing with working conditions. That's what unions do. They are the entity that negotiates and oversees those on behalf of the employees. Because as we all know, it's an employer-employee relationship when the NFL players are at their clubs and at the league. But then there's the for-profit side too, uh, Players Inc. You know, that's how the union generates revenue. So I always tell people the best way to understand Players Inc. is that when you're watching football in the fall and you see a commercial, Pepsi, we'll use Pepsi, and Pepsi's running this ad and they've got eight, nine players. They're showing highlights of games and things and stuff. If you if you look down at the end of that commercial, there will be two logos. There'll be an NFL shield and there'll be the NFL PA's logo. That's if you have six or more players in an advertisement and you are a league sponsor, it has to be approved for lack of a better term. The approval is given within the collective bargain agreement. The NFLPA is saying that we've entered this agreement with the NFL in order for them to use the rights. But then the actual deal for the players to be used is negotiated between the union and the the entity. And so that's how the players ink. That's how that NFLPA generates revenue. And that revenue that they generate becomes what the budget is for the PA each year. The great thing about one of the most phenomenal things that I learned in my time at the NFL PA is that players pay dues, but the dues aren't used for the operating budget. The dues are, you know, for lack of a better term, they either rebate it if, if, that's what the decision of the players are, or they the players may decide that they're not going to rebate the dues because they want to start to build up funding in case there's a work stoppage, et cetera, et cetera. The PA also has lobbying interests, you know, because they want to make sure that players are being heard on their behalf on the things that are important to them. Players can uh, determine to elect to uh, give to those entities. So it, it's, I mean, it's very complex when you're at the 
union, you've got that for-profit side that is completely separate. And then you have the union side, which is about working conditions, wages, and benefits. But the PA, you know, they, they do such a great job of making sure that players are informed. I mean, I've sat in on plenty of, of meetings when they're talking to the players and helping understand. They do team visits every year. There's an executive board that is constantly in contact with the people at the PA. And Damari Smith, who's the executive director of the PA, he always has this great saying is that he works at the pleasure of the players. It's not about what those people in D.C., what they want or what decision they're making. Their decisions are based on what the players are telling them their wants and needs are. And then it's their job to go out and make that happen. So like you say, that skill set of understanding budgets, revenue, you know, the benefits, working condition, grievances, all of those things that I really didn't have any involvement with. But on if you the worked on the PA side, side, you would. But on yeah. the PA side, yeah, you have you to know those things. And you you're said the trust was funded by the CBA, so you didn't have to worry so much about Return yes. on investment and whatnot. But the at the same time, the great obviously thing, you didn't have to fundraise. Yeah, that's right. You, know, yeah. uh, you could go out and you could really focus on what's going to be the best service and resources for the players. All right. So how is that different when you go to the U.S. Olympic Paralympic Committee where revenues are probably a little thinner and the margins are probably a little tighter, at least what gets kicked back to athlete services. And uh, so, and then I'd be curious, even on your consulting side, how much different is yeah. that now? Yeah. So uh, at the USOPC, um, I know we were talking earlier, but one of the things that people may not be aware of is that the USOPC, so the USOPC is a national organizing committee. It's an NOC. There are 200 and there are over 200 NOCs. You know, every country that participates in the Olympic or Paralympic Games has an NOC. Uh, the United States is the only NOC that is not government funded. It is strictly uh, the revenue, the funding comes from uh, the the marketing of the rings. So the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, uh, they, for lack of a better term, own the rings. So, you know, Coca-Cola, Delta, Nike, Procter & Gamble, the big sponsors of Team USA, they are doing deals with the USOPC based on being able to use the rings. LA 28, you know, the 2028 games, summer games will be in LA. And what the USOPC and LA 28 are doing is that they've combined as a group in order to market the rings domestically, in order to raise money, not only for Team USA to compete, but for LA 28 to put on the game. So it's a different, there's also donors. You know, we were talking earlier, there are donors that are high net worth individuals or families that will provide a significant amount in a gift. But there's also a lot of five, ten dollar donations. Uh, people just want to support Team USA. They want to buy apparel that's online from Team USA shop. All of those things go directly back into athletes being able to train and compete either at national or international competition. So the revenue model is different. There's also, you know, the funding that the USOPC gets from the IOC and then also NBC being the biggest partner for the multimedia. Right. And so the 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 numbers are different. But at the end of the day, you're still doing the same thing. What what piece of that pie are you allocating towards the athletes, whether it's on or off the field of play resources and then uh, operating budgets? And then, you know, also making sure that you have something so that if the pandemic or something arises, an unforeseen instance where you need to be you need to make sure that financially you're in a good place in order to be able to continue, you know, to run your business 
business and to do those things. But it's a very unique model uh, simply from the fact that uh, not having the government funding. So I know you and I were talking earlier, you know, if you have government funding and you've got other countries that, you know, they make a push in particular sports and they, you know, they essentially can just say, okay, through our, you know, national federal government budget, we're going to allocate X amount of dollars to sport. That's not how it works here in the United States. So if the USOPC wants or the national governing bodies and there's a, you know, USA track and field, USA swimming, USA hockey, those are the national governing bodies for each sport. You know, there is a partnership that occurs between the USOPC and those national governing bodies to figure out where those resources should go, whether we've got a top talent in those areas you want to keep developing that talent or whether there's a pipeline of athletes that you want to eventually get to being able to compete on an international level. So it's definitely a different model than how it is in the NFL. The uh, athlete services are, I'm not that familiar with them. I've met a few people from professionals from there at various conferences and things. So, but athletes, I know they have career services, yes. have health and safety. Yep. Many what are, of the what are same yeah, kind ma- of? Yeah. So many of the same things that when I got there, uh, some of it was modeled after the trust. And then some of it, you have to be very specific about those particular athletes that you're serving. So, you know, the standard career transition, continuing education, financial education, how do you best educate and support athletes in that space. One of the unique, one of the, when we talk about the differences between the stops that I've had along the way is that, you know, in the NFL, there's base salaries. You know, if you play a certain amount of years, there's a certain amount of money that you have made from from an Olympic or Paralympic athlete, they could actually be spending their own money in order to train and compete. And then obviously, depending on your sport, the prize money, it could be nowhere near what you're making as a professional football or basketball player, et cetera. So those are unique challenges when you talk about just financial education. It may not be about investing and saving this this high net worth. It may be about more of monthly budgets and how can you generate additional income? Name, image, and likeness popped up in 2020 and 2021 when we were preparing for the games. And how can athletes best leverage their name, image, and likeness to create additional revenue that can then they can put that towards training and competing? So those are the things from athlete service. Also, a lot of mental health. That was a focus of mine when I first came in. That was something that we knew we wanted to improve from the USOPC side. But then when the pandemic happened, it really accelerated what we felt we needed to go and what we need to do in that area because athletes weren't competing. They weren't training. It, uh, there was no sense of community because everybody was at home isolated. So, you know, we we really kind of jump started a lot of things in that area that probably in a normal game cycle, there would have been some things that would have happened before the games and would have happened after the games. And even when we were on the ground at the games, you know, one of the, I think one of the uh, proudest moments that I had with my team was we took mental health officers to the games for the first time. It was the first time that mental health professionals, other than the sports site people had traveled with Team USA to the game. So they were in the village on the ground, right there helping athletes, you know, the daily testing protocols, not being able to congregate and communicate and, you know, build those relationships throughout the village like you normally would. We saw a lot of instances where the mental health officers were needed and they were integrated in really helping athletes maneuver and manage that process. And then they had the same thing on the ground in China for Beijing, because obviously that's a different environment. It was even more restrictive than it was in Tokyo. And so uh, those services were needed as well. 
Also, just some of the other areas is uh, marketing. Like I say, that name, image, and likeness piece was something that we were focused on. Also trying to figure out how to best engage. You're not, so at the NFL level, you got you got players at a club. They're all in one location. You can get to them. At the USOPC, you're talking about athletes that are traveling all over the world. How do you find engagement, touch points with them? How do you get information to them? How do you educate them and support them? How do you engage with them? Just you know, you, you when you talk about meeting them where they are, that's difficult when you've got a ski team in one part of the world and you've got track and field athletes in another part of the world. You've got swimmers in another part of the world. So how do you build a sense of that community with athletes that don't really see each other until they're at an Olympic or Paralympic game? So those are some of the unique challenges that you have on that level that you don't have at the NFL level. Yeah, that one sounds complex. Yes. Beyond complicated. Right? Yes. I mean, it's just, there's a lot of ways to solve that. Before we can move to advice, would be my last question for you. I wanted to, of the the wraparound services, you know, when we present them to, like when I teach a class in this, they would, they're all important and you just have to know where you're, re- you, we talked earlier about time, energy, and resources and how important, you know, and that at different times during the pandemic, mental health took more time and energy and, and financial. So, but that, not looking back, let's say look forward four years from now, just because it's an Olympic cycle, even though you're not necessarily Olympics. Across all of athlete development, which of the areas do you think is is trending towards requiring more time, energy, and resources for athletes of the near future? Yeah, I would definitely say the mental health piece. I think that someone asked me this question. They said, do you think the pandemic brought on a lot of new mental health challenges? And I said, I don't think they're new. I think that either one, they they identified the challenges that athletes were already having and probably exasperated them. But I don't think I don't think what athletes were dealing with from a mental health standpoint was new. You know, anxiety around injuries, competition, anxiety, you know, balance in life. Who am I beyond my sport? I think those things were there. The the thing is, is that when you're competing and training on a daily basis, you're not as focused on that. When you're at home, can't compete and can't train, you have more time for self-evaluation and self-reflection. So those are probably things that you get more focused on thinking about and identifying. And the reason I say that is because all those things will show up in athletes, whether this is on the NFL level or on the Olympic or Paralympic level. But those things, I would see those things show up when athletes were injured. So that's why I would say it's not new. Crisis maybe, yeah. Because injury was the only time when they weren't competing and training. So that's the time and any athlete, whether you're an athlete yourself or you work around athletes, no matter how minor or major the surgery, no matter how small or long the window of recovery, at some point when an athlete is not able to physically do what they want to do, there is there is a question of whether I'll be able to do it again. And there's some fear that I won't. And so that's when all the other things come into focus. Some of the best conversations I've had with athletes about what they wanted to do when they're not competing has occurred when they're in the training room recovering. Those conversations are a little more challenging to have when they're in their normal routine of train, recover, compete, train, recover, compete. So that's why I answered that question is that I don't think that new things popped up. I think an urgency to deal with them happened more because people were isolated at home and not not in their normal routine. So definitely from the mental health side, I know you and I talked earlier about this name, image, and likeness. I'm not sure anybody knows exactly what the end result and what it's going to look like. For me personally, you know, we, we dealt a lot with this, getting ready for the Tokyo and Beijing games. We put a lot of focus into 
how Olympic and Paralympic athletes could best leverage their name, image, and likeness. Had a lot of conversations with people on the NCAA level because we were all trying to figure it out. You know, this is the beginning of 2021 when the legislation was all just starting to kick in and stuff. So, you know, there was a little bit of a wait and see, but then also uh, let's be proactive in uh, addressing what we do know. So it'll be interesting to see how that pans out because if you've got athletes making more money off that, there could be a challenge of how to meet the financial education needs of those athletes on an earlier scale, especially on the NCAA, on the collegiate level. It's not about the conversation is not about when you make it professionally and you'll have this amount of money. It is now you're generating this amount of money now. And, you know, it, we both know with that also comes. How do you deal with relationships when it comes to finances? How do you deal with uh, friends and family when it comes to finances? How do you make sure that from the business side, you know, I, I had a conversation with an athlete on the Olympic and Paralympic side about name, image and likeness. And one of the things I brought up and, you know, she admitted I didn't even think of that. I said, you know, this is income. You've got to have a CPA. You've got to have, I mean, you, you don't, you don't want to generate a hundred thousand dollars and not understand that you'll need to pay taxes on mm -hmm. that. And then you get a bill. You're, you know, somebody does your taxes. H and R block may not be the best. Probably not. It's no. not the best resource <laughs> for you now. You're going to yeah. need to go and figure out who professionally can help yeah. you understand this. What states are you working in when you're competing overseas? You know, what's taxable income? What mm -hmm. is travel expenses? What expenses can you write off that are for you performing your job? So I, it's going to be interesting to see probably in the next, you say, the next four years, how that changes what collegiate institutions institutions and what professional leagues and the USOPCs and stuff, how do they address those particular areas of need that you really, you know, in most cases you really weren't dealing yeah, with un you unless you were, it. you know, in a high revenue professional sure. sport. Right. Yeah. It's only a year into this experiment and we have, and it's unregulated. It's just, it's a, it's a, it's the wild west is yeah. an overused way to describe it, but uh, it's not wild west for the athletes. I mean, they are going to get stuck, like you said, in some potentially some really challenging, dangerous, risky deals. They could get sued for breach of contract. Absolutely. They could have the IRS, you know, on them for years if they don't know what they're doing. So it's Wild West is, is a double edged sword. Is yes. another metaphor. <laughs> the, the, mixing metaphors there. Not yes. the the no swords in the Wild West, probably. But I'm a music uh, fan. As Jay Z would say, the gift and the curse. There you go. There's the gift of word. additional revenue generation. But there's the curse of not understanding yeah, the business. Yeah. And that's side part of, of the, our duty, the, the unions the, and uh, the, the institutions, higher education institutions, NCAA members, to start to. Uh, but they don't want to do too much because they don't know what they're allowed to do. It's just yeah. a really, really yeah. gray area right now that yeah. we're in. The representative piece will be interesting, too. True. How the landscape of agents change. Because like you say, breach of contract. I mean, we, we spent a lot of time at the USOPC thinking about that, about if, you know, if a Team USA sponsor signed a deal with, you know, athlete A and the athlete is supposed to do a social media post as a requirement of the deal. And at the last minute, they don't do it. Doesn't mean they don't want to do it. They could have forgot to do it. It just, for whatever reason, it doesn't get executed. How do you deal with that breach of contract? Who's responsible for that? I mean, you know, it's one thing to be attached to an entity such as a USOPC or a national governing body that can help with that. It's a little different if you're you know, an NCAA student athlete. And like you say, there is, you know, there's only so much that the school can do. These deals have to be done outside of the school, setting the parameters and stuff. So really you're talking about now these big, you know, corporate entities dealing with, in some cases could be very 
uneducated or uninformed athlete. Very least inexperienced. Inexperienced, 18 years absolutely. Old. You know, you don't so, have yeah. a lot of business experience at 17, 18 yeah, years if, old. Yeah, if somebody had assigned me to a contract when I uh, left to go play at FAU, <laughs> I, I would have breached that contract in a heartbeat. <laughs> <laughs> I know what you're getting yourself into. Yeah. So anyway, that's, uh, it, you know, and there are institutions like we've, uh, on the sport management side, we created a class on name, image, and likeness so that, you know, we're teaching sport managers how to, and it's uh, literally the individual teaching it. It's Christy Dosh out of Jacksonville is an expert in the space. She said she will only record lectures. To, it's an online class. She's going to record her lectures on Sunday. And the class will run on Monday because it's changing so fast. So that's, yes. it is that that is uh, for academics mind-boggling. Yes, that a discipline is basically being created right in front of our eyes. We have no idea what the practices, <laughs> norms, expectations. You know, that's what we teach: best practices, yes. and knowledge, and the KSAs that you need, the knowledge, yep. skills, abilities. All right, let's pivot to the last question. Advice you give now? So you're in a consulting business now. We are. You're saying pay forward, working with young people. You yes. developing coaches, developing leaders, developing athletes. Uh, advice you give to young ADS. It's just, just focus on that lane. So young uh, yep. Bahati back at the <laughs> at the Jags, if you uh, could give your younger self some advice, your younger self was uh, today yeah. graduating and going into the space. Well, a couple of things. So I had mentioned the gentleman that hired me uh, as an intern to Jaguar. His name was Dan Edwards. And the advice he gave me is the first thing I would give. No matter what profession, athlete development, whether you start there, in there, transition and do anything else, you're going to have to know how to write. I came out as a very poor writer when I graduated from college. It wasn't that I didn't have an interest in doing it. I actually didn't mind it. I just wasn't very good at it. So what he did was he gave me a project or something that I had to write every week of the season. It could be an interview with a player for they used to have a game day magazine. You know, for, for us, that's a little old school. You go to the game and they have like the game program. You pay five dollars for it and it's got a athlete profile of the week and it tells you who the opponents are and all that stuff. So I used to have to write an article for the game day magazine. It could be the first draft of the press release for that week. If we were signing a player or if there was a major addition, a trade or whatever it was, a game summary from the previous game, a preview, you know, we're playing the Steelers this week. So, you know, the five things you need to know about the Steelers coming up for this week. And so he just made me write and write and write. And he used to have this red pen and he would, I mean, that thing, it looked like it was bleeding when he got it back to me. But every week it was a little less red ink and a little less red ink and a little less red ink. And that's how I learned to write. And so as somebody that's hired of, you know, a multitude of people for a multitude of positions, at different organizations, you know, it, it is an advantage if you know how to write because you're going to have to write emails, you're going to have to write memos, you're going to have to write notes from meetings. That's a skill set that the better you are at it, it can separate you from some of the others who just either A, not interested or B, just haven't developed the skill. So that's that's advice that he gave me you and that's advice today. that I always pass on. Number two, I would say be humble. Not knowing an answer as an athlete development person is a okay as long as you go find the answer. I think sometimes as athlete development, we think that we have to have every single answer and we don't necessarily need to have the answer, but what we do need to do is make sure we understand where to get the answer. And sometimes that answer is from someone else in your building, in your organization. Sometimes it's from someone that's not even affiliated with you. But I know I did it as a young player development person. I've seen others do it where you feel like you have to have all the answers because you want your particular athletes to know they can 
can come to you with everything and coming to you for everything and having to answer for everything is two different things. So I would say always understand kind of what your strengths and weaknesses are and then uh, go and find the answers and and build the relationships outside of your building that you need to have in order to do that. Uh, From a hiring standpoint, I always tell people I like to hire my weaknesses. I know the things that I'm passionate and good at. I also know the things that I'm not (laughs) so great at. Uh, We talk about, you know, you talk about the skill set going from the Jaguars to the trust budgeting and the finances were a big thing. You know, I go to the trust and I'm overseeing a $30 million budget. You've got to understand where the dollars are going. You've got to understand what's in the contracts of the partners that you're working with. And so one of the one of the key hires for me at the beginning was a staff person that was good in budgeting understanding data, being able to identify trends. I I don't mind crunching the numbers and getting into those conversations, but it's not, if you gave me 10 things I need to do, that would probably be somewhere between eight, nine, and 10. Cause I was focusing on a lot of the other things, but I hired someone that was very, very good in that area, hiring a weakness. Don't be afraid to uh, hire your weakness. And then also uh, I always say that probably the last one is that managing people is always gonna be the most difficult part of the job, managing people, could mean managing the athletes. It could mean managing if you have additional staff. It also means managing up to a coach or a general manager, a team owner, whatever it may be. The managing piece is going to be the most challenging, but it also can be the most rewarding. And in that, I think one of the key things is that always be able to admit that you got it wrong or that you made a mistake. There is so much, there is so much trust that a leader can garner when others see that they're not perfect and they can admit their mistake because it gives freedom for others to uh, not only admit their mistakes, but be free to take risk on things, calculated risk, but risk on things and not feel like they have to be perfect. A guy at the NFL PA named Ira Fishman, he has this saying where he says, don't let perfect get in the way of good. And that's something that I had to learn because as an athlete development person, you want to be perfect. You want everything you do to be just the right program and just the right speaker and just the right resource source. And sometimes you can get so caught up with trying to identify what is the perfect one that you lose sight of what is actually going to meet that need at that time. And so that's what I always tell people, a leader that can say, I'm sorry. And a leader that can say, I made a mistake, but I'm going to work like crazy to not make that mistake again. And that I'm going to give you everything I got that I've seen that be so powerful in my own experiences. And then also with other leaders. Excellent. Great, uh, great insights there to end with as far as the advice. And I see a, a thread there across even just how you worked and a lot of commonalities, some core values there that came out at yeah. every level. Well, I always, and, and giving it back. I always joke values. with people and say, I may not can tell you what to do, but I can tell you all the things not to do. <laughs> <laughs> that's actually, that's good advice too. So yeah. we'll uh, take it. So thanks for being here. Appreciate you sharing, uh, you know, a lot of really important insights for aspiring and current uh, athletic development specialists and also those that work at, you know alongside athlete development specialists just feeling how how nuanced this job really is and uh, how important they are to the the machine absolutely to run, to run. well thank thanks again for having me this is a growing field it's great to see what you're doing here, that there is a focused curriculum for people that want to work in this space. It's grown so much since I got into it way back in 2001. And I'm always, I used to always be excited when we would get young people and interns in our building because it provides fresh perspective and they're learning things on this level that, you know, they weren't learning years ago. So this is an important field. Like you say, it's a ever adapting and changing field, but I believe it's one of the most important things that, that happens 
professions within professional and collegiate sports is those professionals and those resources that allow athletes to not only be as good as they can be during their playing career, but uh, help them to find balance off the field of play and then also when they're no longer competing. So, yep. Well, well thank said. You. Well said.